Well, a couple of nights ago, I had the dream. It is the dream that every graduate has a few weeks after finishing school. Uh, I finally had this dream. I had this dream several times after I finished uh, my MDiv. Uh, that's a three-year program that uh, I crammed into two. And so by the end of that period, I was one stressed out guy. And so I had this dream after I finished that, and I've been waiting for this dream ever since I finished my PhD. It's the graduate's dream where there's something that you have forgotten to do. And in order to graduate, you have to do that thing. I had that dream. After the MDiv, uh, the dream was about a math class that I had signed up for at the very beginning of seminary. No, that doesn't make any sense, but it was my dream. That's what happened. Math, <laughs> math class was my most feared thing. So in, that, in my dream, I had a math class that I'd forgotten, I'd signed up for, I'd gone to the first class period, and then for two years, I had ignored it. <laughs> and now I needed to graduate, and I wasn't going to be able to graduate unless I did the stuff. And so the other night, I had the PhD graduate dream. It was... <laughs> I've, I've spent the last number of years going back to Louisville and, and to do the, the work back there on the PhD. And so there's always this time pressure of getting back there and having to produce things and having things ready. So in my dream, I get back to Louisville and I, I'm in my room there and my supervisor, Dr. Coppinger, comes into my room and says, well, I'm ready to see your video. What, what video was this? It was on the list of things that I was supposed to do. You're supposed to... I am not lying. This is what I dreamed. You're supposed to produce a video about chickens. <laughs> and I want to see it. I mean, it's, <laughs> pressure's on here. <laughs> it was a short dream. And uh, I, f I finally woke up and... You know, I had to do a little bit of talking myself down about the chickens. <laughs> where, where do I get chickens? And, and, and how, do I, how do I put... To, what am I supposed to say about the chickens? And what, what exactly am I supposed to portray? Uh, and eventually, very early in the morning, I realized there is no such thing. I have graduated. The piece of paper is down the hall. We're all done. No video required, and I don't have to interact with chickens. <clears throat> Time pressure will do things to you. you. Notice that segue here into my topic for this morning. I really just wanted to tell you about the dream, but I just, I'm, I'm tying it in. So time pressure is something that we all feel. You feel it when you're in a schooling program. Uh, Heath has been feeling that, and I have felt it. You feel it at work. You feel it with bills. You feel it in so many different ways. And often we feel that time has us in a prison. Time is a kind of oppression upon us. We think of time in terms of hours 
and minutes, and we're trying to figure out as Americans how to get more out of our hours and minutes. There's so much to do, there's not enough time to get it done, not enough hours and minutes. So how are we going to squeeze more task and more productivity out of the very limited hours and minutes that we have? And we labor under this oppression, and it can take the joy out of our lives. It can really change the way we feel about uh, what we're doing, the work that we have. It can uh, take work that you enjoy, and it can destroy that enjoyment and, and drain that joy right out of it. We want, in this series of about five or six weeks, to ask this question, what does God's wisdom have to say about time? What does God's wisdom have to say about the pressure of time, the prison of time that we are in? Does God's wisdom have anything to say about hours and minutes? Does the scriptures, does Proverbs, does God's wisdom have any way to address that dreaded subject, time management. And um, we're all tempted, of course, to say, yes, God's Word has all the answers about our hours and minutes. God's Word has wisdom for time management. And when I got into this series and really started looking at what God's wisdom says about time, I realized that it doesn't really talk about hours and minutes very much at all. And that's the first thing I learned, and that's the thing I want to share with you this morning. As we look at the limits of time and try to understand where is God coming from about time and the limited time that we have. How does he expect us to approach time? As we ask these questions, we want to notice a couple of things. We've been in Proverbs for over a year, and if you... Uh, if you look at just a couple of them, you'll see that every proverb has time in it, assumed. Let me show you an example. Verse 11 of Proverbs 22. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Interesting. If your words are gracious and you love purity of heart, then in the future, which is to say, after the passage of time, if you continue in that purity of heart and you continue to use gracious words, you will have the king as your friend. Proverbs 22.11 is, has this phrase embedded in it, just add time. Gracious speech... The king is your friend, just add time. Chapter 19, verse 29. Condemnation is ready for scoffers 
and beating for the backs of fools. Notice in this proverb, the condemnation hasn't fallen yet. The beating hasn't happened yet. It's ready. It's poised. There's time. But the scoffer, the fool, will eventually come into that punishment. Just add time. Just continue on the path you're going. Just add time, and this is where you'll be. Time is all over Proverbs. Time is a crucial part of God's wisdom. And my message to you this morning from the Word of God, and let's turn back to Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 11. My message to you is, time does not have to oppress you. There is a way to approach time in God's wisdom that will free you to become the person He has made you to be, to gain blessing in your life, and to walk with Him through the trouble of your life. And that way is found in God's wisdom. We're going to start looking at it this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The first thing we're going to see are the cycles that Ecclesiastes talks about. Then we're going to talk about that idea of cycles as the foundation of the whole Bible's teaching about time. And then we'll look at what the gospel has to say about this. Because all of these issues about being in the prison of time and never having enough time, all of those issues take us straight to the cross and to eternity. So we're going to talk about all of these things this morning. Let's dive in and talk about Ecclesiastes, the first 11 verses, and the cycles that it describes. I mentioned a few moments ago that I went looking almost for a, a time management focus. How do you get more out of your hours and minutes? How do you manage your time better? And I didn't find very many answers about hours and minutes in the Bible because the Bible is about seasons. It's about large, to us, large blocks of time. I want you to think about this measurement right now. What is a lot of time for you? Just think about that. Is it an hour? Is it 15 minutes? Is it a day? What's a lot of time for you? A month? Well, you say it depends on what it is. If it's sitting on a hold with the DMV, any amount of time is a lot of time. I mean, you want to know what eternity is? Just call the DMV. Just call the IRS, any government office, you'll see eternity right there. Endless punishment. The, so it depends what it is. If it's time with my friend, an hour is not a lot of time. It's not enough time. So uh, think about that. Because for the scriptures, we're not talking about hours and minutes. We're not even really talking about days. We're talking about seasons. 
let's say, three months. And that's how the Bible starts to measure time. And then it's got larger measurements from there, cycles of seasons over and over again. The seasons come back and back and back. And that is what Ecclesiastes starts by talking about. It's as if Solomon in Ecclesiastes is saying, listen, you want to come to grips with the fallenness of this world? Let's talk about time. And let's talk about what time does to us. What time does to our work. What time does to our perspective. So he begins with this cheery thought. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If sermons are supposed to start with a joke, this is a pretty dark joke. What is the word vanity? He's not talking about spending a lot of time in front of the mirror. He's talking about emptiness. Vanity is the, the condition of having put a lot in and not gotten very much out. You worked in vain. You slaved in vain. You put all of this investment in something and nothing came back. You're empty as a result of that. This book starts out, and I would say God's wisdom about time in this fallen world starts out by saying everything in this world is empty. It's empty of significance. It's empty of return. It's empty of power, it's just empty. It needs redemption. Now, we're not going to stay here with this thought, and Solomon doesn't stay with this thought, but he does start here, and we need to get our hands around this. He's, he asks this question as the first way of developing this amazing opening that everything is vanity. All is empty. How does he develop it? He asks a rhetorical question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Notice the repetitions of these words, vanity, in the space of two lines he repeats five times. And then in verse 3, he repeats the word toil twice. This is telling us that his real point is to zero in on all the sweat and the work and the, the heartache and the grieving and the resentment that we put into life. And Solomon is saying, look at that. What are you gaining from that? With all the toil at which you toil in your life. And he develops this further by talking about the whole sweep of human experience. Thousands and thousands of years through human history. Everything we know about human history, he sums up here, beginning verse 4, about the cycles of things through time. A generation comes, uh, I'm sorry, a generation goes, and a generation comes. 
but the earth remains forever. Our population is constantly changing. People constantly dying, people being born. We're born to die. The generation that is now young will become old and will pass away. And there will be another generation up behind that. What is Solomon saying here? There's an emptiness in this. There's a kind of purposelessness in this. There's a, a cycle going on here that you can't stop. We all rejoice and we should rejoice when our children are born, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. We love this, but we also know the children die. And they're going to grow up and they live a full life, a full one, a great life. Where are they going to end up? In the grave. The earth remains forever. So all these people cycling through the earth. Look at verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. This is, uh, this is Solomon's version of the Greek myth of Sisyphus. I think I'm saying that correctly. Sisyphus uh, is condemned eternally. Uh, not to be a sissy, that's not what his name means. He, there's a rock that rolls down a hill, and Sisyphus's job is to push that rock back up to the top of the hill, only to see it roll right back down. So the sun rises, and it just speeds its way right back to that eastern horizon where it's going to rise again, right back to the same place. Another cycle of days. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. Well, we know about that here. We got our north wind coming from that way. We got our south wind coming from that way. It's a very nice day because we had a south wind. But it's going to switch around. And that north wind is going to come, and the heat's going to be back. And so we know all about this. The wind is going to blow this way, and then it's going to go blow that way. You can't change it. Because nobody can get up there with some kind of a, a vent system and switch it around to the east, maybe, or to the west. Or maybe let's change it up and send it up to the northwest. You can't do it. It's going to do what it's going to do, and it's going to change. And you can't control it. It's another cycle. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Boy, how much water do you need? You've got every single stream, every single river. It's all running into the oceans. All that water, all of it, it only goes to one place the sea but it never has enough it's never full it never stops it just evaporates over the sea or maybe it evaporates over lakes and just goes back into clouds goes back over the mountains rains, snows and comes right back down again cycles it just keeps spinning and spinning verse 8 he's working toward his point here 
all things are full of weariness. Well, how weary is it, Solomon? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. You can't even put it into words how weary these cycles are. Over and over and over again. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We always need more. We always want more. We always crave more. No matter how much we work, no matter how much the return on the investment, no matter how much we make this year, we're going to need more next year. We're going to have to do it all over again. And it needs to be better. It needs to be bigger. We call it the grind. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. It's all going to come around again. All these cycles, they're going to come back and back and back. You cannot stop it. So, you know, we've just finished up graduation season and all of the graduates are talking about change, changing the world. Now go out there and change the world. And Solomon says, nope, ain't going to happen. You can throw your cap in the air and you can celebrate. You can take all the stuff that you know and you can run out there into that world and you can push and shove and you can agitate, and you can do all the things you think you're empowered to do, and you will not change the wind. The wind's still going to blow. You will not stop death. People will still die. You will not stop birth. Interesting how we're trying to stop both, isn't it? You won't stop either one of them. People are still going to die. People are still going to be born. Now, I look at all of this, and I think, wow, this is grim. This is dreary. Who wants to, who wants to read this? This is, this is not the kind of inspiration we think we need to start the day. And Solomon basically peers back at us and says, I know it's not what you want, but it's what is. And you can either deal with what is, or you can ignore it and try to pretend that it's not there. Wisdom does not ignore reality. And so he starts out with this dose of reality, and it's a pretty stiff drink. He concludes verses 10 and 11 by talking about something very interesting, memory. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. Is there such a thing, Solomon asks, is there actually a new thing out there? It has already been in the ages before us. It's already happened. If you think it's new, it's just because you've had historical memory loss. You've got epical dementia. 
You can't remember what happened in the ages past. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will, there, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. What's he saying? Our generation doesn't remember the stuff that went before. And the people who come after me, Solomon says, aren't going to remember the stuff that I'm doing either. But that's okay. Because what goes around comes around. All the stuff that they toil over, nobody past them is going to remember it either. Cycles. So what do we do with this? Why is Solomon hitting us with this uh, so relentlessly? And by the way, he's not done. If you've read Ecclesiastes, you go through this entire book and he's basically just going to unpack everything that he's said in these 11 verses. Um, can I tell you something that might be uh, revolutionary or might, um, might indicate to you that I have lost my mind? I don't know which. This is a tremendous comfort to me, these verses. They're a balm on my spirit. You know why? Because when I get agitated about politics, I just read history. Donald Trump is Andrew Jackson. It's happened before. Andrew Jackson got inaugurated, and, and at his inaugural party in the White House, everybody got so rowdy that the walls of the White House ended up smeared with cheese. What a metaphor. <laughs> Donald Trump is a populist in the Andy Jackson mode. That's what he does. If you're upset about it, shouldn't be that upset about it because it's happened before. If you are totally into it, watch out because it has happened before. So when I look at this, I go back to memory and I say, wow. When we just remember the things that have happened in ages past, what we're going through now looks an awful lot the same. And if all of those people in the past survived that whole mess, I think we'll probably survive this too. We went back to Washington, D.C. Last, uh, last weekend, late last week, and that trip uh, for us was, um, it was about memory. I wanted Bridget and the boys to see monuments. Why do we put monuments in certain places? Because it helps us remember and internalize what happened through certain leaders or through certain ideas. You go into the new uh, World War II monument it's so hard to get a sense in a photograph or a picture of what that does to be in that place. Everybody says when you go to the Lincoln Memorial that you just cannot get a sense of how huge that thing is until you're standing right in it. And then you turn and you see the words of the Gettysburg Address 
printed on one wall, on the opposite wall, the entire second inaugural address, which says something about how short Abraham Lincoln's speeches were, that you can carve them into one wall, even big ones. Um, and you read those words and you, you look at all of this, you go into the Capitol building and you realize, I'm standing in the room of the old House of Representatives where um, John Quincy Adams, having lost the presidency, went back to Congress and spent the last decades of his life serving as a congressman, as a former president. Can you imagine anyone doing that today? You know where he died? In that room. He died at his chair, at his desk in Congress. Awesome. So you, you go back to these places and you remember. Um, Malcolm and I have been talking about a book about the Constitution this week, having gone back there and actually looked at the physical Constitution. Uh, I wanted him to read more about what went into that. And so we've been talking all week about all of the work it took to craft that Constitution, all of the disagreements, all of the fighting and arguments. Why? We need to remember how tough it is to do anything in this world against these cycles. We need to remember it, we need to know it, because if we don't, we're stupid. Every new thing we face, we just got loser written on our heads. It's too big, it's too tough, it's too hard, it costs me too much. And we turn into a bunch of whiners. And that's what we've become as a nation. It's what happens when we lose our memory and we get dementia of history. We don't know this stuff anymore. We don't even know what a struggle is anymore. So I look at this and I say, yep, there's an antidote to this, memory. Let's remember. Let's call some stuff back and see if that doesn't set all of these cycles in perspective again. Um, another thing that comforts me is the fact of the cycles themselves. One day, a couple of years ago, early in the spring, I was driving uh, downtown and um, came up to uh, that edge of Bidwell Park there, and all of the, all of the oak trees were just leafing out or had just leafed out for the spring. And the oak trees, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but they have this brilliant, bright green color when they first leaf out in the spring. It doesn't have that now, it all goes dark. But when they first come out, it's just brilliant. And I looked at that, and it was at a moment when things were just really going terribly. Nothing was going right. And in fact, big things were going wrong. And I really needed some perspective. I got it from a bunch of trees. And what they told me was, they leafed out last year, and the year before that, and the spring before that, 
and the spring before that. And the leaves came down every year and then they leafed out again and that's what's happening right there. Who is in charge of all of this? God is. He's got this. He understands all of these things and there is nothing in these cycles that should thrill us too much and nothing that should depress us too much. Because the cycles just go on. There's an emptiness to this. What is Solomon's solution to that? Go to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. The bookend to what we just read in chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 12. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember who made you. Remember who designed you. Remember where you come from. Do it early because these cycles are going to hit. And if you remember your Creator in your youth, you will be able to rise above the cycles because your Creator is above those cycles. So it reads this way. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. And he goes on and on and on. Rise above this. Get out of the cycles. Get a different point of view of this. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Start early. Start now. Drop down to verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The cycles are going to stop because someone is over them. Someone is above them. The cycles are our fallen world and he is going to bring those cycles to a stop. Where are you going to be when the music stops? That's what Solomon put all of this before us to say. Now, I want you to see that this is not just Ecclesiastes. Um, this is a foundational teaching throughout the whole of Scripture about time and understanding the time that you've been given. Um, a reiteration of this from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the first eight verses. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. This is from that song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Or maybe I have that backwards. A time to be born and a time to die. 
a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. For everything, there is a season. Big blocks of time. Months, years. This is foundation to biblical wisdom. How are you measuring the time of your life? If you're doing it in hours and minutes, I guarantee you there is no management solution for you. You cannot manage your way out of hours and minutes. You can't manage your way out of a thicket of tasks right in front of you that you are bound up in and can't escape. There is no management for time. Time will not be managed. Time just is. What's the way out of this? Wisdom. Why are you doing all of these tasks? What is this season in your life for? How might all of the tasks that you do come together in this season of your life? So, the Bible thinks in terms of cycles and seasons, and that is... Um, characteristic of Ecclesiastes. Turn to me, turn with me to Psalm 90. One of the oldest, if not the oldest, psalm in the Bible, Psalm 90, is written by Moses. Probably recovered by David. This is old, really old. The page cannot tell you how old this is. It's been forgotten before. It's been recovered before. Notice what Moses says. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. Or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. How long is that? It's a long time. That's an eternal season. It's an age. This is a meditation on human death under the wrath of God. 
Moses basically says, you have put your heavy hand of wrath upon us. We are going back to dust, just like you said. Um, Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So Psalm 90 is saying, Lord, you are eternal. You are above all the cycles. You judge from that posture of being above all time. All the hours and minutes are nothing to you. Nothing. So, here's the great inference of Psalm 90. It's in verse 12. So, teach us, Lord. That's who he's addressing. God, everlasting to everlasting. Teach us. to number our days. So we're going to go to the one who is above all the cycles, who looks at what we are doing, not from the point of view of, oh, you poor people, not, too much to do, not enough time. That is not the posture at which God is looking at us. He is looking at us from the posture of eternity and wondering why we waste so much time. You only have this much. Maybe it's 70 years or by reason of strength, 80. You've only got this much. What are you doing with it? Why are you wasting this season? So, Lord, from that point of view, teach us to number our days. Teach us to get a sense of how short this time is, how limited it is. Give us a sense of how dependent we are and how stuck we are in all of these cycles. Drive this into our head. Why? So that we can be depressed and go about in mourning. Is that why it says this? No. That we may get a heart of what? Wisdom. You want wisdom? You need God's view of time. You need God's view of time because yours is too small. Mine is too small. We're too into hours and minutes. It's not high enough. We can't possibly understand the limits of our life and the purposes of our life until we see time from God's point of view. So we're not talking about management here. If you come out of this series in several weeks and say, I know... I'll just devote a little more time to this task. I'll manage it better. If that's the big application you take away from this series, I have utterly failed. You cannot manage your way out of your problem with time. It can't be done. We're looking for a heart of wisdom. Seeing our lives from God's point of view. One final passage. Isaiah 40. 
just to nail down how foundational this view is, this view of time to the teaching of the whole of Scripture. Isaiah 40, verse 21. This view of time is shot through just not only this whole big chapter, but the entire prophecy of Isaiah. It's it's through the entire Bible. We're just going to look beginning at verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? How long is that? This is something, this message has been repeated over and over and over again from the beginning. That's a long time. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? We've had this lesson before. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Went for a walk yesterday and you walk out in, in, uh, on the edge of town with the hills on one side and the fields coming right up to a, a housing development. What, at this time of year, you find yourself walking through actually locusts <laughs> scattering at your feet. And my thought the other day was great locusts now. Uh, but uh, this is what it's like for God. The inhabitants of the world are tiny. We are small. He has regard for us, but it isn't because of our size. And it isn't because of our greatness. Because we don't have greatness and we don't have size. We don't have magnitude. We do not have power. So the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He's bigger than the universe. He spreads it out like a curtain, like a tent. God who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Theresa May, Prime Minister of Great Britain, a few weeks ago, was 20 points ahead of her opponents in the Labor Party. She called a snap election. I'm going to capitalize on this and increase my majority in Parliament. She called that election, and this week she lost. What about that? 20 points ahead, and in the space of a few weeks, you're scrambling for your future. God brings princes to nothing. They have no power. So who is this we're talking about? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely is their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom, then, will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Now God's voice cuts through. And he says, who are you going to line up to me? What leader? What idea? What other God 
that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes up on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Who is that? That's God. In other words, we want God to help us with our petty little problems because there's just not enough time in the day. And we wish that we would come and God would just inspire us with a little bit more energy so that we could have time to get through all of the hours and minutes and the tasks tomorrow. And we have set up our whole religion in this country to accomplish that petty and pathetic goal. You are sitting in the presence of the creator of the universe. More than that, you are sitting in the presence of the one who gave his son to die to purchase you out of sin and death and bring you to eternity. What are we doing wasting our time on pettiness. Let's get a heart of wisdom. Let's look at our time on this earth from God's point of view. That takes us straight to the gospel, saying nothing new here, but really the whole Bible says you're limited and God is eternal. You've only got so much time, and actually we don't know how much time we have we keep finding this out every single day, but we need the heart of wisdom to receive that understanding that I do not have time to waste. I really only have time to worship. I really only have time to give glory to the one who is eternal. My time is limited and there is nothing that I can do about that. My time's going to run out. My hope does not run out because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's our Savior. He eternally saves. What He did on the cross is outside all of these cycles and one day he will return and all of these cycles will stop and we will face him as the judge. So my question to you is, are you willing to give up your obsessions with time? And are you willing to order your priorities according to his eternal will? If you are, you will see that heart of wisdom start to grow in you and you will see something else amazing. You will see your hours and your minutes redeemed. They will start coming back to you. You will start to see that there is a manager of your times and seasons. And as you trust him and as you follow him, and as you give glory to him, you will start to see him manage your days and your hours and your minutes. He will show you where to go and what to do. And you will begin to see 
that he does indeed have his plans in order for you every step of the way. That is the heart of wisdom that we want. That is the heart of wisdom that we need. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask you to teach us over these next weeks as we think through the very important priorities that you have laid before us. We pray that you would give us the will to decide what to do with time that is given to us. Help us to think the way you think about time. Help us to gain a depth of faith that will get us ready for the time we're living in. And we ask you to do this because the time is short and because we have a deep need of your wisdom. And if there is someone here who is calling out on your name, Lord Jesus, and is asking you for eternal life, saying, I know, I don't have long, I am going to die. The cycles are grinding me down, and I'm part of it, and I'm a sinner. Forgive me, heal me, change me. If someone is calling out on your name right now, save them. We all intercede together as your people, and we ask you to pour out your spirit on that person, and that they would see your power, your greatness, and your goodness and that they would believe you, love you, and be assured that they belong to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see what we've got in terms of questions. Um, if you need to slip out, uh, this is a good time to do that. Um, let's see here. This is my son saying, man, I wish you told me about this stuff before I started high school last year. <laughs> you got time. <laughs> There's still time. <clears throat> also, he says, you were, you're talking about time and stuff, but you were rushing around this morning because you were late. You got me. It's true. And when we get behind the eight ball, we get rushing around and we do things poorly. That's what happens. So we need wisdom. Here's another question. Those weren't questions, those were comments. <laughs> but we'll take them anyway. Some Ecclesiastes commentators point out how similar Solomon's writings seem to Greek writers, Ep Epicurus and Sisyphus, like you mentioned. There seems to be a sort of understanding of the inspiration of Ecclesiastes because they allude to Solomon copying these Greek ideas. Um, but it is interesting to note that Solomon died more than 200 years before Sisyphus could have lived and 750 years 
before Epicurus lived. All of that is true. Um, you see this a lot. This is a great comment. Um, there are a lot of similarities between what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes and Greek philosophy. There would be similarities also with Stoic philosophy uh, about how, hey, look, it's just time. Things happen. Don't let it affect you so deeply. The Stoics uh, taught those kinds of things. There are similarities between what Solomon is saying and Eastern philosophy. Eastern philosophy, Buddhism, Hinduism, really um, majors on the big cycles. And you're all just part of the cycles. Uh, so here's the difference. Solomon is not saying you are going to be a drop going into the impersonal ocean that is the ultimate end of Buddhism or Hinduism. And he is not teaching the kind of Greek philosophy or Stoicism uh, or Epicureanism, which is another philosophy about pleasure. Um, he's not teaching those things. He's saying, you personally have a judge. And this is the big difference between Solomon and what he is saying and what other philosophies teach. Um, on these issues of cycles. But it is, uh, it is just the case that you're gonna see big similarities between what Solomon says and what other philosophies say because they're not all false. It's just mixed with falsehood. And so they, very often, the philosophers and the religious teachers are onto all kinds of true things. We need to recognize that and understand ultimately it is coming from the fact that God's world works the same way for all of us. And we can all read his book in creation and in experience. So all of those things are, are part of that. 